I'm Nikki Kristoff, and welcome to Teched Up. Today's guest is Sheila Warren, who sits on the executive committee of the World Economic Forum and runs its technology division. We're talking Web3. What is it, and why is it suddenly all over the news? A note to our listeners. This show is recorded, produced, and hosted in Washington, D.C., so we might be a smidge over-indexed for cynicism. After last week's episode, in which I basically was just airing personal grievances about apps that don't work, this show is a counterpoint. Sheila is a true believer in Web3 and the metaverse, and by the end of this conversation, she just about convinces me to be one, too. Sheila Warren, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm so grateful to have you. You have three kids, a huge job, and you're in San Francisco where it is unconscionably early to come on someone's podcast. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Nikki. It's a pleasure. So I'm excited to have you because we have had a series of, I would say, skeptics on certain technologies, including the metaverse, and you are an enthusiast for this space. And part of your job is getting people to understand the real potential of blockchain and decentralized technology. And what I'd love to talk about today, I want to start with your perspective overall on this potential, but also get into some of the basic vocabulary around what is Web3, what does that have to do with the metaverse? (laughs) We're in the middle of a hype cycle where in the last few weeks, it's all over the headlines and people don't get it. But let's start with your perspective in general on decentralized technology. Well, I think that the potential depends to a large extent on what you see as the current state. And so if you think that the tools we have today, technologies we have today aren't necessarily serving people or as many people as they should or aren't serving people in the ways that maybe they ought to, then I think you see more room for potential. If you don't feel some of these things as pain points or problems, then maybe you don't really care as much. And so I actually think what's really been interesting to me and the perch that I'm in here at the forum is I have a global perspective. And so I can kind of see across, like beyond the United States, but what's happening in other parts of the world. And I can tell you, you know, there are real problems with how technology is deployed, with how money functions, with how the banking system works, right? Like in different parts of the world. And in those places, we're definitely seeing more uptake, more enthusiasm, more adoption of some of these innovations. One of the things I want to ask you about is this concept of what is Web3. But just to back up for two seconds and try to recap what you just said. So we basically live in a world I'm an institutionalist, so this is a good conversation for us to have (laughs) because I love an institution, but you're not wrong that the system is rigged in many ways. There are tremendous inequities in how people can access financial services in the way that people have to give up data or privacy to get certain services. And so let's just do like a basic lay the groundwork. What the heck is Web3? (laughs) What is Web3? So... Yeah, maybe we'll start with, you know, what is Web 2? Let's kind of start there. So Web 2 is sort of the current world we're all familiar with, where we get out our mobile device or we get on our laptop or whatever, and we post a photo or we post a funny meme or we do something. We're doing that through a centralized platform. Okay, and so a lot of the conversation right now is, well, who gets access to those platforms? Who gets to say whatever they want to say? Who gets to censor or decide what is said? And the reality is it's not always you. It's not always the person who's posting, right? It's someone else. And really, it's a team of people, I would argue, really grossly underpaid, you know, people, overworked people who are going through, and in some cases, uh, computers, machine algorithms that are deciding what content is appropriate, what content is not. That's just one very concrete example to get their heads around. 
But there are a lot of other ways that we're seeing centralized platforms engage. So if you think about your payment app of choice, right? If I go in and right now we went out for a drink, let's say we were doing several drinks and, oh, I forgot my wallet or oh, I forgot my credit card. You know, I'm just going to get out my phone. That's what I would more normally do. I'm just going to zap you money through whatever system we choose, Zelle, Venmo, Square, whatever it is, right? We're relying on that system to handle that for us. And what they're doing is making sure that they have a trusted relationship with our banks, whatever those banks are, and that they are engaging through this centralized, essentially, system in the exchange of value between you and me, right? Like, or I could just hand you cash, right? I could just literally hand you a $20 bill. So -hmm. you think about the difference there and just the amount of entities and people and agendas that are kind of between us in one context versus in the other where I'm literally handing you a $20 bill, there's something to be said for maybe we need more opportunities for that direct transfer for me handing you a $20 bill. And maybe those opportunities could actually be digital. So Web3 is really about, it's, I mean, people who are big fanatics of it call it the next phase of the internet. But I think it's more than the next phase of the internet. It's basically decentralized online systems. Okay. So rather than me having to go through, maybe your app of choice, Insta, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is to get content, I can do that directly. There is no platform that's controlling what happens there. Okay, so there's no central gatekeeper that's deciding. There's no intermediaries, we call it, who's deciding like what happens where. There's nobody else who owns that data. There is no other third party that's like mediating or mitigating or sitting in the middle of anything. Users do that. It's like a little bit mind melting to me because (laughs) we the last episode we did was on the metaverse. And the reason we were talking about it is because Facebook changed their name to Meta. And so the concept was that Facebook is potentially creating something of a walled garden. And I really genuinely don't get it when you say is the idea that I would be I would own all of my own data and go between these different worlds and these different apps so let's go back because the metaverse, I think the easiest way to understand the metaverse is, is through gaming. Okay. And so not everyone's a gamer. I am not a gamer. Um, but I think that anyone who has children is probably pretty familiar with the idea that a lot they spend time online, whether they're playing like Pokemon Go or whether they're playing, you know, some math game like my kids that I'm trying to groom to be giant nerds <laughs> yes. unsuccessfully, but I'm trying, you know, they're <laughs> playing some math game, right? And they like beat a level, they beat with some dragon or whatever, like math problems, and then they get something like a cape or a wand or an apple or what a flower, whatever it is. I have no idea what it is actually, you know? And so right now all that's contained within that game. So they can, like my my daughter has like purple hair and she has this cool sword and she has a, a dragon companion, whatever. She can't take that out of the gaming environment with her. That's all within that game. Right. And that's how a lot of games function. So you work your way up levels, you do whatever it is and you earn loot. We call it loot. And basically that loot has to stay within your game. Now, there is this really interesting secondary market that's emerged where someone's like, I am not capable gaming-wise of earning the sort of whatever, you know, but you have one. Wow, what if I could buy that off you using like actual cash, right? I could usually literally use US dollars and buy that thing off you because it's so cool. So that's where you kind of get into this thing called NFTs, which I I'm sure you probably talked about it at some point. Yeah, we so did NFTs, do an episode on it. Okay. So NFTs are, are sort of, you can imagine that they are a way of creating scarcity where there's really abundance. Okay. So basically if you're like, well, anyone can go out and like claim they own a screenshot of something, but now some people can prove that they own that thing. There's actually a mechanism for proving, no, I really am the owner of the original art, whatever it is, the original cape, the original wand, the original whatever it is, Right that has value because it's now scarce. 
there are only 50 of these wands in the world or whatever it is. I'm using that example. There's only 50 of this, you know, jewel in the world, right? And so if I want to trade it or sell it, there's value to that. That's how markets are created. Scarcity is what creates markets in many cases, okay? So if you can do that and you can move the thing from place to place, suddenly you have a much more attractive system than if you're kind of stuck within one universe. Does that make sense? So that's kind yeah. of how, that, that's how I think you think about the metaverse in that way. And so the idea is that there's going to be like, maybe there'll be multiple metaverses. So what governs the rules of engagement? Is Facebook going to have its own metaverses and then Roblox will have its own metaverses and, you know, whatever it is, they'll all have these totally distinct, unique metaverses and you can't engage across each other. That's less interesting than kind of one online intermediated world where you have the ability to be who you want to be in these different places and kind of take your identity from place to place. Okay, so I'm going to sum this up and tell me if I'm getting it right. So Web3 is the concept of instead of Web2, where we have these large, mostly a, a small number of companies or institutions, banks, tech companies, managing, being the intermediary between us and someone else. Web3 is the idea that there are no intermediaries. You sort of own your own assets, data, wands, capes, whatever it is. <laughs> and you can take that between different worlds. You take your data, your metadata, your loot, and you it's decentralized in the sense that you don't have to depend upon these intermediaries and you're not captive to their systems. You can go between them. And the metaverse, what I'm hearing you also say, is just an example of a three-dimensional online space where this is already kind of playing out with gaming, but in theory, Web3 could be any kind of decentralized system, including financial systems. I think that's a pretty nutshell way of putting it. Yeah. You know, I think that let's take it back and, and maybe slice it one different way. It might help. So when you think about your identity, right? So those of us who are kind of so I came of age when, you know, it, I was the first class in college where everyone got assigned an email address. So I remember teaching when I was a freshman, teaching seniors, like there's this thing called email and you can actually write somebody a letter and it goes through a computer and then you can like pull down a mailbox. And it was like, oh, like, what? you know, so that was where I grew up. So I grew up with an era of like, we watch TV at a certain time and God help you if you miss your show, you know, kind of thing. Right now think about my children. I have an eight, five and two year old. I mean, on demand, everything, which is its own issue in its own way, but there's a very different experience that they have. They fluidly move through an online and offline environment. So my eight-year-old, especially during this pandemic, you know, she gets on FaceTime with her best friend on her iPad and they play this game together. Again, it's this nerdy math game. They play this game together, but they're looking at each other and video chatting while they're in the same world. And think about the fact that she's got her avatar wandering through this world and then her face on FaceTime talking to her best friend, and they're both doing this. And so the identity she has in this world is, again, it's the purple hair and the wand and the whatever, the dragon's following her. But then she's just herself on the video. And to me, like, I took this screenshot at one point because I was like, that is such a powerful example of what we're talking about. So there are people that their Twitter on Twitter, they have one voice and identity and brand. You can even call it that, right? But then on Insta, they've got a different one. And there's that meme that went around of like the four pictures of someone, like their LinkedIn picture, yes. their Twitter picture, right? And it's different. Why is it different? Because you're presenting a part of who you are in that environment based on the parameters and the etiquette of that environment. So you don't put your Tinder photo on LinkedIn. Well, maybe you do, depending on your profession. Most people would probably not do that, I'm assuming, right? So, so there's different ways that you want to be. And so the idea here is that you should have control over what you display when but also 
with these kids, tweens and younger, I'd even say teens, probably even college students and younger, part of their online identity is their identity. It's not yes. there. like, so for most of us, like my age, we're like, this is my LinkedIn profile. It's my, you know, very professional photo. And I, I think about those things a little more consciously. Whereas for these kids, they're just much more fluid with who they are and what they are. And the experiences they have online, like I'm very certain that my kids will all have friends they primarily interact with in an online environment, digital environment. And they primarily interact with through some sort of avatar experience, right? That's their main modality. It's funny to me that you keep invoking your age. So you and I are the exact same age and actually went to the same college and law school. And <laughs> this is so, but this leads to, you're absolutely right that, I'm sure you're right that for kids right now, it's intuitive that they would have an online self and an analog self, yes. that they would have relationships in person and relationships online. But I also think it's worth talking about, you and I are basically, again, we're the same age. And you said something to me the other day, you said like, who even uses email anymore? <laughs> I use email. I use email. I write thank you notes. I believe in the art of letter writing. I call people like it's 2005. I just call them on the phone, which I know is antisocial <laughs> behavior, but I do it. I just pick up the phone and call people. And I think it's not just generational. I think it's also attitudinal. And in some ways, I feel a wistfulness for losing this in-person dynamic of making eye contact and having relationships in person and being able to use a writing utensil and a stamp <laughs> to send a letter, but you yeah. seem excited about it. So I would like to close out this conversation on you're doing really interesting work on privacy, owning your own data. Like, tell me the positive story of this, because I am super skeptical of the metaverse. I I'm, I don't think I'm a Luddite, but I, I like certain things that feel old fashioned, but I've heard you talk with great enthusiasm about specific potential that's empowering can you make the case for all yeah. of this? Yeah. So, so I think there is something to mourn and better be and be wistful about, you know? So I definitely grew up writing the thank you notes. I hate email because my inbox is a disaster, not because I don't think it's efficient. And because I think we never solve the spam problem effectively. So, so much yeah. junk still makes it through and it's really frustrating to have to sift. So I'm still a person who meets up with my friends in real life and like goes and has girls nights or whatever it is, right? So I, I think there's something to definitely be a little wistful about. But I also think when I think about, you know, I am the daughter of immigrants. I am the wife of an immigrant. We are in such amazing touch with cousins. Like my daughters have relationships with their cousins who live half a world away. That would never, it would not be possible without, you know, honestly, an asynchronous online kind of environment in many ways. And so whether that's a video call, which is, you know, it's still a similar thing to what you're talking about. You're still engaging real life with a person or whether it's just like their ability to just I don't know, be in an environment together where they can just leave things for each other here and there, or like hide us something in the environment that they're in, whatever game or whatever that they're in. I think there's something you said for kind of opening up uh, the world to people and, and giving them the opportunity to experience and, ha and meet people and, and engage with people beyond their immediate in-person environment. I just think that's really interesting to me, particularly for those who don't have the means or ability to travel, to see the world. You know, there's climate implications to all of that. This stuff is really, to me, important and fascinating. But I'll also just give an example. So I have a podcast um, called Money Reimagined. We did an episode recently 
uh, on the Philippines. I, I love doing these country episodes where we really talk about what is blockchain and crypto doing in these different places. And so in the Philippines, you have to understand that the economy of the Philippines is very much a remittance-based economy. It is based on people that leave the Philippines, that go to other countries to earn wages that they send back to the Philippines. So when you look at the fact that in the state of California, Philipp nurses are Filipino by and large. Like that is the number one cultural demographic and ethnic background of nurses in the state of California is Filipino. So they're in Dubai, they're all over the place. We're doing all kinds of this work and sending back. But there is this game called Axie Infinity, and it's created what they call what's called a play to earn model. People actually are earning money, like real money that they can convert into actual money to go buy things with, right? Like to support their families um, through this game. And it's really fascinating to observe this phenomenon. It's blown up. Just think about what that's opening up for these economies. And so they had this concept that they're talking about of, of the emotional tax of leaving your country as an immigrant, moving somewhere far away for more opportunity. And strictly, you're doing that to earn money. These are not people who are moving for an expat experience and to have like a jaunty year abroad or gap year. Right. They're people who need to feed their families and they need to do that by leaving everything they know. That's too high a price to pay, that there should be options. And so part of what I think Web3, even the metaverse, NFTs, like all of these different technologies are ushering in is ironically the ability for these folks to spend more time in person with their families and loved ones in the places they were born and raised or near their communities, but in places that that feel comfortable and meaningful to them and not be forced to strike out in these often dangerous ways. So I think when you think about diaspora communities, you think about what pushes people to leave a country for another country, more often than not, it's the lack of opportunity. And when you move things to a digital environment and you give people real income generating opportunities, that to me is just tremendously important and really powerful, not just at an individual level in terms of like the, I invested in Bitcoin and made a lot of money, blah, 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 but for what it can do for communities, you know, like the, the fabric you can weave. I just think it's incredibly powerful and really exciting. Okay. This is exactly why I wanted you to come on this show. <laughs> Because I think people, I sit in Washington, D.C., and a lot of the attitude toward cryptocurrency, I think people think of it as like revenge of the virgin nerds, like nobody's <laughs> really rooting terrible. for it. And if you can instead <laughs> think of it as Web3 is a way of removing these gatekeeping institutions, giving people the power to send money seamlessly and with lower fees to reduce the friction in the way that they provide for their families, their loved ones. It's an opportunity for your kids and kids around the world to connect with people globally so that they aren't just with the kids in their zip code. We will be able to own our own data. We will be able to decide what, you know, if we want to be paid for that data. This is sort of the vision, right? It's not just gambling on tokens. There's this idea that we're going to disaggregate and disrupt institutions to empower people. I think that's exactly right. And the, the other frame I'll just throw in there is, what if we had a more equitable way of allocating risk and reward? So right now, when you think about how a, a traditional corporation is set up, you've got a lot of the risk on the employees, on the, the, the lay workers, whatever it is, and a lot of the reward is held by shareholders or by the board, right? There are ways of actually using to a token economy to actually empower people like employees, workers, users, customers, whatever it might be, and to balance, to actually balance some of that, to say, maybe decision-making should come from some of the users of a service. Maybe they should have more say in what actually products get rolled out or, or how things look or whatever it might be. 
that might be something that's more pro-social behavior rather than this very extractive model, which kind of leads to antisocial behavior. I'm not going to cite the Sackler as an example, but that's a very extreme example of extreme antisocial behavior, right? You can imagine more pro-social behavior if the doctor, I just watched that documentary, so this I'm good, it's kind of in my head, but like you can imagine a more pro-social system if you'd had doctors able to kind of weigh in, whether it's tokens or something else, on what was happening there. So when you think about a stakeholder set, like people that are engaging with a product or a service, having the ability to have a voice in that system, that to me means, I think that necessarily, if you believe in democracy, which I do, I think that means that you're going to get to a better outcome. It may not be linear or clean. It might be messy. It's going to have its own hiccups, its own challenges. But I certainly think that we have evidence that the current system is leaving so many people behind in ways that are just not fair, not equitable. Uh, and I don't think sustainable, frankly, I don't mean on the climate way, but I don't think our systems are sustainable the way that they're currently set up over the longer term. This is a chance for us to think about creating a new foundation to how we interact with each other as a society that I'm hopeful will lead to more well-being and more happiness, You know, which is I yeah. think ultimately what I'd really like to see. It's funny that you mentioned the Sacklers. We've dragged the Sacklers on this podcast. <laughs> uh, and we've also dragged some big companies that are sort of setting the rules of the road. And so if we think about Web3 as a tool of empowerment for individuals that creates a borderless opportunity to get out of this extractive situation of fees, of giving up your data of having your data walled off and you know not portable. And we think of it instead as empowering individuals to move seamlessly across these online worlds digitally, then maybe I'm for it. Oh my gosh. You I, might I have think you should be. <laughs> I think I've convinced you or at least shown you a different way of thinking about you it. You so. have. Sheila, thank you for coming on the podcast. You are a rival podcaster, although significantly you've been doing this for a lot longer. I'm so grateful you came on. You have a show called Money Reimagined. It's part of the Coindesk network. You interview people. They're more long form. They're super detailed. People should give it a listen. Thank you, Nikki. And there's no such thing as rival podcasters. I think we're all just trying to make sense of this. I think we all sense there's something really big that's kind of bubbling up. You know, it's like the image of that boat and there's the giant whale underneath it. You know, there's something really big that's happening here. And I think no matter where you are in the world, people have a sense of that and they know that it's coming through a digital environment. And so we're all trying to make sense of it. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to you for having me on and giving me a chance to talk about why I'm so excited about this space. Next week, I'll be joined by Leo Reese to talk about international attitudes toward artificial intelligence and how these feelings will shape AI's evolution in the years to come. And as a bonus for our crypto fans, Leo tells me his story of buying a Damien Hirst NFT at the end of the episode. Be sure to follow Teched Up wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes come out every Thursday. <laughs>